Hello and happy Halloween. I hope you're listening to this somewhere suitably dark, ideally through headphones, by the light of nothing but a pumpkin lantern. Before we begin, I feel it only fair to warn you that this episode, as you can probably tell from the episode title, features graphic detail of horrendous murders committed to women, including the detail from the actual autopsy reports. I have ensured that I only talk through the facts as they were reported, without the need for any additional grisly embellishments. But if you're in any way squeamish, then please heed this warning and consider giving this episode a miss. Also, I know a lot of people listen to podcasts when they're trying to sleep, and I've spoken to people who've told me that they like to listen to How Haunted while dozing off. This episode is in no way suitable listening if you're trying to sleep. Pick a different episode. Any episode. Just not this one. And without further ado, I hope you enjoy this big Halloween spooktacular. On with the show. scariest night of the year is finally here. It's Halloween. Welcome to the second annual How Haunted Halloween Spooktacular. This is the paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet Earth. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within. In this year's Halloween special, we head to the east end of England's capital and ask, just how haunted is Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel? Listener discretion is advised. With it being Halloween, this special show will be extra scary, and will feature more murder, more horrible happenings, and some incredibly gory tales. And of course there will be more spooks, spirits and spectres than even the bravest of listener can handle. At this, the spookiest time of the year, listen on if you dare. The spookiest time of year is here, when darkness reigns and the veil between worlds is at its thinnest. Tonight, as the moon casts an eerie glow on the world below and the wind whispers ancient secrets, we venture into a realm where the extraordinary becomes ordinary and the mundane fades away. But beware, dear listener, as the subject of this year's Halloween special is most definitely not for the faint of heart. For tonight we embark on a spine-chilling journey through the haunted streets of Whitechapel as we unravel the mysteries surrounding one of the most notorious figures in history, Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper 
in our quest for truth and understanding, we will walk in the footsteps of Jack the Ripper himself, peering into those shadowy corners where victims met their untimely demise. And we'll get to know Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly, the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper, each murdered in the most horrific manner imaginable. And we'll seek out the ghosts of Whitechapel, reports of ghostly apparitions, eerie footsteps, and mysterious sounds have plagued this area of England's capital for the last 135 years. Are these spectral echoes the tormented souls of those who met their ends at the hands of the Ripper? Tonight, at the perfect time of year for such tales, turn the lights down low and join me as I guide you through the east end of London and together we look for the ghosts of Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel. Whitechapel is in East London and takes its name from the church St Mary Matfalin, which like the nearby White Tower of the Tower of London was at one time whitewashed to give it a prominent and attractive appearance. Throughout the 19th century overcrowding, poverty and violent crime was a major problem that was difficult to deal with. Whitechapel was London's worst slum. It had the highest death rates, the most severe overcrowding and it was the most dangerous place in all of London. In his 1861 book Ragged London, John Hollinshead describes the lanes off the Whitechapel Road as thousands of closely packed nests, full to overflowing with dirt, misery and rags. Children play in the streets. Their fathers and mothers mope in cellars or garrets. Their grandparents huddle and die in the same miserable dustbins. It was the worst smelling place you could ever imagine. The area was right next to industries such as shipyards, slaughterhouses, tanneries and breweries, and the foul stenches that they all produced. The City of London designated the East End for these businesses, as the wind blew from west to east, so it meant that the upper class areas in the west of the city would avoid these horrendous smells, but for those in the East End, and Whitechapel in particular, there would be no escape in them. Pay was low in these industries, and as a result, rent was extremely cheap, in stark contrast to the area today. So Whitechapel attracted a huge number of immigrants, mostly Eastern European Jews and Polish refugees. The English residents weren't thrilled and feared that they were going to take away their jobs. This meant that anti-Semitism was rife. This melting pot of hate, poverty and filth all contributed to the boiling point which was about to explode when the autumn of 1888 brought a new threat to Whitechapel. A series of unimaginable crimes that the area will be forever best known for, when a serial killer terrorised the community, committing a series of particularly violent, unsolved murders. A vicious murderer was on the loose, and a number of letters were allegedly sent by the killer to London Metropolitan Police Service, often known as Scotland Yard, taunting officers about his gruesome activities and speculating on murders to come. Letters were sent to the local press too, there were many letters sent and most were believed to be hoaxes, but there are some which are considered genuine. The first of which is one of the most famous, the Dear Boss Letter. Received on September the 27th 1888 at the Central News Agency, this letter was originally believed to be just another hoax. 
but three days later, the double murder of Stride and Eddowes made them reconsider, especially once they learned that a portion of the latter's earlobe was found cut off from the body, eerily reminiscent of a promise made within the letter. The police considered the dear boss letter important enough to reproduce in newspapers, hoping somebody may recognise the handwriting. The letter was signed Jack the Ripper, the name by which he became known by, and is known by to this day. Other names he's less commonly known by are the Whitechapel Murderer and Leather Apron. Another letter supposedly sent by the Ripper was the From Hell Letter, which was addressed to George Lusk of the Whitechapel Vigilante Committee. It came with half a preserved human kidney, purportedly taken from one of the victims. Jack the Ripper was a cunning adversary for London's police force. He mutilated his victims' bodies in a way which forensic experts claimed showed that the murderer, whoever he was, had a substantial knowledge of human anatomy. There are mortuary photos of the victims for anybody listening whose curiosity may get the better of them. They aren't all graphic, with the exception of Catherine Eddowes' photo, such was the extent of her facial injuries, and the two crime scene photos of the Ripper's final victim, Mary Jane Kelly. There are photographs showing the faces of all five women following their murder, and knowing that they are photographs of recently murdered women is horrendous. The stuff of nightmares. I won't post them on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod alongside the other images that make up this very special episode, but if you want to see them, they're out there. The murderer was never captured, or even identified, and his motive remains unknown. Jack the Ripper remains one of England's and the world's most infamous criminals. All five killings attributed to Jack the Ripper took place within a mile of each other, in or near the Whitechapel district of London's East End, between the 31st of August and the 9th of November 1888. Various theories about Jack the Ripper's identity have been produced over the past several decades, which include claims accusing the famous Victorian painter Walter Sickert, a Polish migrant, and even the grandson of Queen Victoria. Since 1888, more than 100 suspects have been named, contributing to the widespread folklore and ghoulish entertainment surrounding the mystery. There are five women who are listed as being victims of the Ripper. However, this has been debated, discussed, and disagreed upon for almost 150 years, with there potentially being 11 victims of Jack the Ripper. The five canonical victims, as they become known, are Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, and Mary Jane Kelly. They have been described as being prostitutes ever since they were murdered. But this is another point of contention, as in more recent years some historians have suggested that this may not necessarily be true in every case. There are other murdered women, who are sometimes debated as being possible victims of the Ripper. They will not form a part of this trail through Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel, but they all deserve to be remembered. Emma Elizabeth Smith was robbed and sexually assaulted in Osborne Street, Whitechapel, at approximately 1.30 in the morning on the 3rd of April 1888, four months before the first recognised Ripper murder. She had been bludgeoned about the face, and her ear was badly cut. A blunt object was inserted into her vagina, which ruptured her peritoneum. This was what caused her death, rather than the severe beating that she received as she developed peritonitis and died the following day at London Hospital. Before she lost her life, she was able to stagger into the hospital and she would explain what happened and describe her attackers. She said that two or three men had attacked her in the early hours of the morning. One of these she described as being a teenager. 
This is the reason for Emma Smith not being included in the list of Ripper victims, as she lived long enough to describe her killers, and this has led to a general agreement that her death was the cause of East End gang violence. The body of Martha Tabram was found on the 7th of August 1888, the same month as the first recognised Ripper murder. Her lifeless corpse was discovered on a first floor landing in George Yard, Whitechapel, now called Gunthorpe Street. She had last been seen with a soldier on Whitechapel High Street. Martha had been stabbed 39 times, with stab wounds to her throat, lungs, heart, liver, spleen, stomach and abdomen. She also had knife wounds on her breasts and vagina. Her murderer was right-handed and used a small bladed knife, such as a pen knife. She had not been raped. As you'll soon hear, the outpouring of violence that Martha's killer delivered, as well as the date and location being so close to the canonical Ripper murders, this sounds a lot like the work of Jack the Ripper. However, experts point to Martha being repeatedly stabbed, with no slash wounds anywhere on her body, which is a common theme in the attacks of Jack the Ripper. As a result, despite her killer never being brought to justice, she is not considered a Ripper victim. On the 25th of February 1888, Annie Millwood was admitted to the Whitechapel Workhouse Infirmary with numerous stab wounds to her legs and lower torso. The 38-year-old widow told staff that she'd been attacked by a man she didn't recognise wielding a penknife. She was discharged on the 21st of March, but collapsed and died just 10 days later on the 31st of March. Coroner Baxter, who headed up the inquest, concluded that her death was from natural causes, unrelated to the vicious attack she'd received. Some claim that Millwood was the Ripper's first victim, but there's nothing to definitely link this attack to the work of the serial killer. On the 28th of March 1888, 39-year-old Ada Wilson answered her door at 9 Maidman Street, Mile End, in Bow, a little over a mile from Whitechapel. A man she described as being around 5 foot 6 in height, and who had a fair moustache and sunburned face was stood on her doorstep. His clothes consisted of a dark coat, light trousers and a wide awake hat. She said the man said that he would kill her if she didn't give him her money. She refused and the man pulled out a pocket knife and stabbed her twice in the throat. She screamed for help and her neighbour Rose Beerman came to see what the commotion was. The man wasn't caught and despite newspapers reporting that she was in a dangerous condition and it was thought impossible that she could recover, she made a full recovery. Some claim that Ada was a dressmaker while some claim that she was a prostitute, seeing men at her home. This was discounted as the work of the Ripper, due to his motive not appearing to be robbery, but some have theorised that it's possible that Ada's claim that he was demanding money might not be entirely true, if he had came to her home as a client and she was simply looking to protect her reputation. The murder of Mary Jane Kelly on the 9th of November 1888 is widely considered to be the final victim of Jack the Ripper, the reason for his murder spree coming to an end is unknown, but it's been speculated that perhaps he feared the police were getting closer to finding out who he was, although given the brashness of his letters, this seems unlikely. Perhaps he died, was imprisoned for another crime, or left London, or maybe even England altogether. But the Whitechapel murder files detail another four murders that occurred after the canonical five, those of Rose Milet, Alice Mackenzie, the Pynchon Street Torso, and Francis Coles. The body of 26-year-old Rose Milet was found in Clark's Yard, High Street, Poplar, 
a few miles from Whitechapel, on the 20th of December 1888. The cause of her death was strangulation. The crime scene showed no sign of a struggle, and it looked like she may have committed suicide hanging herself by her collar. However, investigators noticed faint markings on her neck, which were consistent with being strangled. An inquest was held to establish her cause of death, and she had indeed been murdered. This was not considered to be the work of the Ripper, as, other than the close proximity to Whitechapel, and coming so soon after the final known Ripper murder, this murder didn't match any other aspect of what Jack the Ripper had done to his tragic victims. At just before one o'clock on the wet morning of the 17th of July 1889, PC Walter Andrews found the dead body of 40-year-old Alice Mackenzie in Castle Alley, Whitechapel. She had suffered two stab wounds to her neck, one of which had severed her left carotid artery. She had minor cuts and bruises on her body consistent with the struggle that had clearly taken place. One of these was a seven-inch cut from her navel up to her left breast. Thomas Bond, who was one of the examining pathologists, declared that the Ripper was back, and that he had taken his sixth victim. But George Baxter Phillips, his colleague and examiner of three previous Ripper victims, said that this was not the work of Jack the Ripper. He pointed at this likely being the work of a left-handed killer, whereas the Ripper murders were committed by somebody right-handed, and the five canonical victims were all killed with much deeper and longer injuries, which cut down the spinal column, and that wasn't the case here. Poor Alice's demise has been debated long and hard ever since, with opinion pretty much divided. Some suggested that it's possible the killer copied the modus operandi of Jack the Ripper, perhaps to confuse those investigating the murder, or maybe it was a sick fan looking to add to the furore. On the 10th of September 1889, a corpse was discovered beneath a railway arch in Pynchon Street in Whitechapel. The unknown victim, who became known as the Pynchon Street Torso, was missing its head and both legs. It was determined that she was a woman aged somewhere between 30 and 40 year old. She had been badly beaten shortly before she was murdered, evidenced by bruising on the victim's back, hips and arms. Her abdomen had been mutilated. She was not killed at that spot. Her incomplete remains had been transferred to the remote location shortly after her death, and she had been killed roughly one day before being discovered. Her missing head and legs were never found, and her identity remains a mystery. Another horrifying discovery of another woman's torso missing a head and other limbs was made on the 2nd of October 1888 in the basement of the new Metropolitan Police Headquarters being built in Whitehall. She was quickly nicknamed the Whitehall Mystery. Her arm and shoulder section had already been found floating in the River Thames on the 11th of September and her left leg was found buried near the new police headquarters on the 17th of October. The head and other missing limbs were never found and she remains unidentified. The case is incredibly similar to the Pynchon Street Torso, and they were linked by police who believed that they were hunting a serial killer they had dubbed the Torso Killer. There was, and still is, some debate as to whether the Torso Killer and Jack the Ripper could be one and the same sadistic killer. There were a further two victims linked to the Torso Killer, and only one of the four was ever identified, being that of Elizabeth Jackson, a 24-year-old prostitute from Chelsea whose various body parts were collected from the River Thames over a three-week period between the 31st of May and the 25th of June, 1889. P. 
PC Ernest Thompson discovered Francis Cole badly attacked and wounded beneath a railway arch at Swallow Gardens at Whitechapel at quarter past two in the morning on Friday the 13th of November 1891. 25-year-old Francis's throat had been badly cut, which led to a school of thought that the officer had interrupted her attacker in the act of killing the poor young woman. She was alive when found, but died before medical help arrived. Francis was reported to have been a prostitute, and had been seen drinking and arguing earlier in the evening with 53-year-old James Thomas Sadler. He was arrested and charged with her murder. The police briefly thought that they had finally captured Jack the Ripper, but on the 3rd of March 1891, he was released due to lack of evidence. The body of a seven-year-old boy named John Gill was found in a stable block in Manningham in Bradford in Yorkshire on the 29th of December 1888. Gill had been reported missing two days earlier. His legs had been severed, his abdomen opened, his intestines partly drawn out and his heart and one ear removed. This sounded incredibly similar to the work of the Ripper, which led the press to speculate that the Ripper had left London and headed to Yorkshire and had indeed struck again. John, despite being only seven years old, worked as a milkman, and his employer, 23-year-old William Barrett, was twice arrested for the murder, but he was released due to insufficient evidence. No one was ever found guilty of young John's murder. On the 24th of April 1891, some suggested that the Ripper was back and had emigrated to America. Carrie Brown, who was nicknamed Shakespeare, reportedly for her habit of quoting Shakespeare's sonnets, was strangled with clothing and then mutilated with a knife in New York City. Her body was found with a large tear through her groin area, with superficial cuts to her back and legs. No organs were removed from the scene, though an ovary was found upon the bed, either purposefully removed or unintentionally dislodged. The attack sounded like the work of the Ripper, as it seemed that the killer must have some kind of knowledge of anatomy and or surgery. But the Metropolitan Police ruled out any connection to the murders in Whitechapel. We will now look at the canonical five, and you will come along with me as I walk through Whitechapel, visiting the key locations during the Ripper's reign of terror. Our aim isn't to try and establish the identity of Jack the Ripper. His identity has remained a mystery for 135 years, and this is one mystery that will likely never be solved. Rather, we will take a walk through haunted Whitechapel and look for the ghosts left in the wake of Jack the Ripper's killing spree. We now find ourselves on Durwood Street, at the back of Whitechapel Tube Station, and our grisly tale begins here, on the 31st of August 1888. The beginning of what was dubbed the Autumn of Terror, as this is when the first of the victims known as the Canonical Five was murdered right here. 43-year-old Mary Ann Nichols, known as Polly Nichols. Born on August the 23rd, 1845 in London, Mary Ann Nichols was born Mary Ann Walker. In 1880, her marriage of 16 years broke down. Her husband called her a drunk, and she accused him of being unfaithful. For the next eight years, Mary Ann Nichols had anything but a stable home, living in workhouses, public lodgings, her father's house, and the homes of various lovers. She struggled for money, as the year after the breakup from her husband, he stopped paying her an allowance accusing her of living an immoral life. By 1888, Nichols was completely dependent on alcohol, 
paying for her habit with prostitution. Mary left the frying pan pub at about half past midnight. She was a known alcoholic and a prostitute, selling her services for around three pence, which was the same price as a large glass of gin. She could have spent the night at Wilmot's lodging house for four pence, but she drank away any money that she made. She was last seen by her friend Ellen Holland at around 2.30 in the morning, on what has been described as a particularly wet and stormy night. Mary told her that she'd made 12 pence that night, but had drank it all away, so was off to find her next customer. That was the last time anyone ever saw her alive again. At around 20 to 4 in the morning, a carter called Charles Cross was up early to head to work, and he walked along Bucks Row, a narrow alleyway in Whitechapel. He neared the entrance to a horse stable, and right here where we're stood now, he slowed down as he saw a shape in the darkness lying on the ground. He got closer, and then he realised it was a person. He was unsure what to do, and then he heard footsteps behind him. He turned around and saw Robert Paul, another carter, and told him of his discovery. The pair saw a woman lying still on the ground, her skirt pulled up to her waist. They felt her and she was cold. They were unsure if she was dead or if she was drunk, but they pulled her skirt down over her knees to protect her modesty and then left her as they were running late for work, and they knew they'd come across a policeman en route. They were right as mere moments later they encountered PC Jonas Mizen and told him of their worrying discovery. He headed straight to the scene, and when he arrived there were already two other policemen on the scene, PC John Neal and PC John Thane. Neil had come across Mary's body only a few minutes after Cross and Paul had left the scene, and he called over Thane to help him when he'd seen him patrolling nearby. Mary's throat had been violently slit, from left to right, twice over, with the incision going all the way through her vertebrae. Detective Chief Inspector Frederick Aberline was called to work on the case, and he was determined to bring Mary's killer to justice. But Frederick found that there was nobody with a bad word to say against Mary Ann Nichols. And with no idea of a perpetrator or a motive, an entire week passed by with no progress whatsoever on finding her killer. Seven nights on from the murder of poor Mary Ann Nichols, Jack the Ripper would strike again. The luminescent ghost of a woman lying prostrate in the gutter has been sighted in Durwood Street. This was the original Bucks Row. It was renamed in 1888 following Mary's murder due to the unwanted attention it was receiving. The spot where the ghostly corpse has been seen is where an exit from Whitechapel Underground Station meets three off-street parking spaces. This further haunting reported in the vicinity included what are said to be the sounds of the Ripper's other victims. People walking down the street alone in the dead of night have heard what they've described as being the sound of somebody being murdered, a woman screaming out for help. They've looked around expecting to see somebody being attacked in the shadows, but there's nobody there. Those living in the flats that overlook the murder site have been awoken in the middle of the night by the sounds of a woman screaming, crying, then the screaming stops and is replaced by a gurgling sound before all goes quiet. Horses and dogs are said to shy away from this spot. People walking their dogs down this street have said that the dogs acted completely fine until it reaches the spot where Mary was murdered, at which point it started whimpering, shaking and crying, digging in, refusing to walk any further. As soon as they pass the spot where Mary was murdered, the dog returns to normal. 
A well-regarded ripperologist was once taking photographs of the street, and he overheard a man and woman talking, but when he turned around, there was no one there. A paranormal reporting which appears to be completely unrelated to Mary Ann Nichols occurred in December of 1974. A man was in a warehouse here which has now been demolished, and he got a shock when he witnessed the ghost of a young boy dangling from a rope tied to a ceiling hook. Previously the building had been a boarding school. While we're in the area, it's worth looking at the Royal London Hospital on Whitechapel Road, only a few minutes away from Derwood Street. This building has its own ghosts. A ghostly grey lady reputedly walks the corridors of the hospital, whilst tradition has it that the shutters must be closed overnight. Otherwise, the hospital will see an unexpected death during the night. Joseph Merrick, known as the Elephant Man, was admitted to the hospital in 1886 and spent the last few years of his life here. His mounted skeleton is housed at the medical school, but is not on public display. Back on the trail of the river. Once we backtrack along Derwood Street, we get to Valence Road and turn right. Then we take the first left onto Old Montague Street and then an immediate right onto Hanbury Street. As we walk past Deal Street, Spittle Street and then Brick Lane, we will reach a car park on the right hand side, opposite number 28 Hanbury Street. The house where Jack the Ripper's second victim, 47-year-old Annie Chapman, was murdered in the yard no longer stands. But there are plenty of photographs of it online, and you can see it on the Instagram over at How Haunted Pod. But it will have looked similar to the houses you can see across the street, such as numbers 28 and 32. Born Annie Eliza Smith in London in 1840, she married John Chapman when she was 28, who according to some sources was a relative of hers. Together they had three children, Emily Ruth, who was born on the 25th of June 1870, Annie Georgina, who was born on the 5th of June 1873, and John Alfred, who was born on the 21st of November 1880. Sadly, this family was plagued by challenges and tragedies, made worse by Annie's addiction to alcohol. Their youngest John was born disabled and had to be placed into a home. On John's second birthday, their eldest child Emily died of meningitis. She was just 12 years old. Annie, who had stopped drinking in 1880, found solace at the bottom of a bottle, and from that moment on, her marriage was doomed. They separated in 1884, and John Chapman was obliged to pay her a weekly allowance of 10 shillings via a post office order. John Chapman died in 1886, which meant that Annie was no longer receiving any money. Her surviving daughter, Annie Georgina, who had gone with her father when her parents had split up, was placed in at the care of her grandmother. By the time of her estranged husband's death, Annie was living with a man who made sieves for a living, which had earned her the nickname of Annie Sivvy by some of her acquaintances. Shortly after John Chapman's death, this man moved out and she was left all alone and penniless. She made a little money crocheting flowers to sell, but her main source of income was prostitution, and this is what would ultimately see her preyed upon by the Ripper. Number 29 Hanbury Street had a small backyard that easily collected to Hanbury Street via a 20-foot passageway, which meant that trespassers, including prostitutes and their clients, were frequent nuisances to the 17 residents who called Number 29 home. At 6am on the 8th of September 1888, John Davis, who lived at Number 29 Hanbury Street, came downstairs and into the back courtyard where he discovered the body of Annie Chapman splayed out between the steps and the neighbouring fence with her skirt pulled right up. 
She was slumped against the fence with her throat slashed and her body cut open from groin to her chest. She was nearly cut in two. He ran out into the street in a panic looking for help and he shouted out to three workmen, James Green, James Kent and Henry John Holland. They ran with him back to the body and then they all set out separately to find a policeman. Although James Kent was so disturbed by what he had seen that he left the others and set out to find a brandy instead to steady his nerves. Henry Holland found a police constable on patrol at Spitalfields Market. He told him what had happened. The Ripper had murdered again. But the policeman informed Henry that he could not leave his post. John Davis, however, had headed straight to Commercial Road Police Station and burst through the door shouting for all to hear that there'd been a murder and he needed to speak to a senior officer. Mere moments later, Inspector Joseph Chandler was following Davis along Commercial Street, back towards Hanbury Street. A crowd had gathered at the scene, keen to get a glimpse of the macabre scene. The inspector ordered that the crowd be dispersed, and Dr George Bagster Phillips, the divisional police surgeon, was called for. By the time he arrived it was about 6.30 in the morning, and word had spread and the curious crowd was several hundred strong. Poor Annie's body had now been covered over with some sagging. Dr Phillips knew immediately that she was beyond any kind of medical help and declared her dead. At an inquest he said, The left arm was placed across the left breast. The legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground and the knees turned outwards. The face was swollen and turned on the right side. The tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips. The tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top and bottom and very fine teeth they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. The throat was dissevered deeply, that the incisions through the skin were jagged and reached round the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood, corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay, were to be seen. These were around 14 inches from the ground, and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. Later that day, the post-mortem would reveal that the killer had deftly cut out Annie Chapman's womb, and had gone off with it. Newspapers could do nothing to ease the rise and panic within the community of Whitechapel, carrying the story with one front page reading, Ghastly murder in the East End, dreadful mutilation of a woman, capture of leather apron. The house was demolished in the 1970s and replaced with the Truman Brewery. The murder site is now a car park, which also acts as a Sunday market. In the 1930s, residents claimed to be able to hear Annie being murdered in the backyard of the house. One Hanbury Street resident even claimed to have been standing over the site of the murder, and they could hear an invisible woman gasping for breath, screaming for help. This was accompanied by a heavy male breathing and the sound of a knife swishing through the air. Then there was the sound of a body being dragged, footsteps running away from the scene, and then silence. A headless figure has reportedly been seen sitting in the backyard, and her phantom has been seen walking down Hanbury Street, stopping at number 29, accompanied by a shadowy man. One man who lived opposite number 29, when the original building was still present, claims to have seen a couple entering the house on several occasions over a number of years, but he would never actually see the door open or close to allow them entry. When pointed out the mysterious couple to others who were there with him, such as his wife, or on one occasion his brother, neither could see the couple who the man could plainly see in front of him. When the building was demolished to make way for the brewery, the location of the murder was a storeroom, 
and staff reported seeing a headless apparition in the room. Above was the brewery's boardroom, and local tradition had it that each year on the morning of September the 8th, the boardroom would be unusually cold, icy cold, to the point where anybody in there could see their breath. We continue down Hanbury Street and we turn left onto Wilk Street. We then take the second left onto Fournier Street, lined with original 18th century homes giving you an idea of how the buildings in this neighbourhood appeared back in the 1880s. We take a right onto Brick Lane and we walk down, stopping when we get to the decorative archway that spans the road. Beneath the arch, we will now be able to see the Shard Restaurant. The Shard Restaurant is the site of the former Frying Pan Pub. The two crossed frying pans carved into the stone are the original decoration of this 19th century pub. This is the pub where the Ripper's first victim Mary Ann Nichols drank away her money on the 30th of August 1888. Our next stop is the home of two suspects in the Jack the Ripper murder investigations. To get there we'll continue down Brick Lane. When we get to Whitechapel Road we cross the street and enter the Old Tab Alley Park. We walk through the park and exit the park onto Alder Street. We go right and turn immediately left onto Mulberry Street, stopping to look at the buildings on the right. None of the original buildings from the Victoria era still stand here, but in the 1880s there was a square of houses here, which housed mostly Jewish immigrants. This densely populated area was home to two of the major suspects in the Jack the Ripper murder investigations, Aaron Kosminski and John Pizer. John Pizer had a prior conviction for a stabbing offence, and he was suspected in a string of assaults on local prostitutes. He was arrested after the Ripper's first two murders, but was cleared as there was no concrete evidence against him, and he had strong alibis for the nights the murders were committed. Kosminski was known to be mentally unstable, having previously threatened multiple women with knives. In memoirs published in 1910, Assistant Commissioner Sir Robert Anderson names Kosminski as his prime suspect. His reasoning being that he believed Jack the Ripper to be a local Jewish man of low class, and Kosminski was known to be mentally unstable, threatening to stab multiple women. Anderson also claimed that the identity of the Ripper was known by one person who wasn't willing to testify as they were also Jewish, and didn't want to turn over a fellow Jew to the police. Next, we'll head to where the third victim was found. We continue down Mulberry Street and take a right onto Plummer's Row. At the end of the road we turn right onto Coke Street, and then the first left onto Wayhill Road. When that road ends we turn left onto Commercial Road and take the first right onto Henrique Street, formerly known as Burner Street. We walk along this street until we come to the Bernard Barron Building on our left. This is where the Ripper's third victim, Elizabeth Stride, would meet her untimely end. Three weeks had passed with no further murders at the hands of Jack the Ripper, but the people of poverty-stricken Whitechapel were waiting for him to strike again. By the end of September 1888, the Autumn of Terror was at its height. Locals were terrified to leave their house. Unwilling to answer their door to strangers, peering around every corner, just praying to God that they would not encounter the serial killer. Elizabeth Stride was one such Whitechapel resident who knew only too well the risk she was taking being out late at night. However, she simply didn't have anywhere to go. Born Elizabeth Gustaf's daughter in 1843 on a farm in Stora Tumlehead, 
a rural village within the parish of Torslander, west of Gothenburg. Elizabeth left home at 16. She headed to Gothenburg to seek employment, and she found work as a domestic worker. But five years later, this job came to an end. In the following year, in March of 1865, she was arrested on the charge of prostitution. She was 21 years old. The following month, she gave birth to a stillborn baby girl. In February of 1866, she relocated to London. The reason for this is unclear, as it seems she told conflicting stories, with one version claiming that she had a job lined up as a domestic worker for a man living near Hyde Park, and she told somebody else she had family in England. She likely funded the trip with the 65 kroner she inherited from her mother's death in August 1864, which she received in late 1865. Three years after arriving in England on the 7th of March 1869, Elizabeth married John Thomas Stride, a ship's carpenter from Sheerness, who was 22 years her senior. By 1874 their marriage was struggling. They had an on-off relationship until the 24th of October 1884, when her husband of 15 years John Stride died of tuberculosis in the Poplar and Stepney Sick Asylum. Times became tough for Elizabeth, or Long Liz as she was now known to her friends. Without her husband's income she sought work where she could, but she had also returned to prostitution. It's 7.30 in the evening on the 30th of September 1888, she left a lodging house she was staying at on Flower and Dean Street, heading out into the London night looking to earn some money. She was spotted later accompanied by a man who was described as being short with a moustache. They were hugging and kissing, and the witness, a Mr J Best, shouted over to the couple, a jovial, watch out, that's leather apron getting round you. This light-hearted quip may have proven tragically accurate. Stride and this mystery man were spotted twice more, first on Burner Street by William Marshall, and then by P.C. William Smith. A little after midnight, Israel Schwartz was walking along Burner Street when he saw a woman, who he would later identify as Elizabeth Stride, standing in a doorway when a man passing by stopped to talk to her. The man threw the woman to the ground, and Schwartz clearly heard her scream three times. At this point, the man spotted Schwartz, and another man in the area lit a pipe and started walking towards him. Israel was fearful for his own safety so ran away. Around one in the morning Louis Dierschmutz entered Burner Street on his horse and cart. Turning into Dutfield's yard his horse stopped dead as something lay in the road. Louis leapt down and lit a match to find out what it was. He caught a glimpse of a woman lying on the ground covered in blood, then his match blew out. He ran into the International Working Man's Educational Club next door and called out for help. Some of the men joined him and they returned to the yard. They found Elizabeth Stride's recently murdered body. She was 44 years old at the time of her death. Her body was still warm to the touch, and blood flowed from wounds in her neck, consistent with Lewis discovering the murderer in the act and then fleeing the scene. Dr Frederick Blackwell attended the crime scene. He said that the cut of the neck had nearly severed the vessels on the left side and cut the windpipe completely in two. Blood was running down the gutter into the drain. This cut it almost removed Elizabeth's head from her body. Dr George Bagster Phillips, who had also worked on the Annie Chapman murder, performed Stride's autopsy, and he reported, The deceased had a silk handkerchief round her neck, and it appears to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained that it was cut. This corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed and there was an abrasion of the skin about one and a half inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right arm. Elizabeth had been murdered in the most horrendous fashion, but there was no mutilation. 
possibly due to the killer being disturbed in the act, but all the same, the police were unsure whether this was the work of Jack the Ripper. Less than an hour later, however, the police would get the confirmation they needed. The confirmation that proved that this was indeed the work of the Ripper, who was most definitely still prowling the streets of Whitechapel. Israel Schwartz, who had seen Elizabeth with a man less than an hour before her murder, and may well be the only person to have gotten a good look at Jack the Ripper, described the man to police. He said he was about 30 years old, with a height of around 5 feet and 5 inches, fair complexion, dark hair, small brown moustache, with a full face and broad shoulders. He was dressed in an overcoat and an old black felt hat with a wide brim. Dutfield's yard was a narrow yard situated between number 40, which was the International Working Men's Educational Club, and number 42 Burner Street. These days, Burner Street has been renamed Henrique Street, after a local benefactor and the housing on both sides of the street has been cleared to make way for a school. The gates of the school are where Elizabeth Stride breathed her last, and where her body was found. In the weeks and months following the murder, people claimed to be able to hear the ghostly noises of a woman struggling and crying out. People would race to the scene thinking it was the Ripper claiming another victim. However, as they neared the spot, the woman's screams would fade, until they were stood on this spot in total silence. As the years passed by, this occurrence was reported less and less frequent, and by the turn of the century in the year 1900, 12 years after her murder, the reports had stopped altogether. If we retrace our steps to Commercial Street and then take a left, and then follow the road until it dead ends, then take a left onto busy Whitechapel Street, pass an Oldgate Station, then Oldgate East Station, we'll reach the church of St Boltoff without Oldgate Church. In 1888, prostitution was against the law, but was incredibly common. As for many women living in Whitechapel, it was their only way of making any money. So despite it being illegal, two rules were set, and providing these were followed, the police would turn a blind eye. Prostitutes could not loiter or stay in a single place for a long time. They always had to keep moving. The customers had to approach them. The women could not solicit men. As a result, a system was put in place that quite literally revolved around the St. Boltoff without Olgate Church. This church essentially became Whitechapel's red light district, as the prostitutes had to keep moving, so would simply circle the church repeatedly until a customer came along. Up to 200 prostitutes a night could be found here circling this very church. The last time Jack the Ripper's fourth victim was seen alive, she was circling this church. Let's move on and head to the sorry site where she met her end in the worst imaginable manner. We turn left leaving the church and between the buildings until the space opens up in Mitre Square. A quarter to two in the morning, less than an hour after Elizabeth Stride body had been found, PC Edward Watkins happened upon a grisly discovery in the southwest corner of Mitre Square. Catherine Eddowes had led a difficult life. She was born in Wolverhampton in 1842 as one of ten siblings. Her mother died of tuberculosis in 1855, aged only 42, and her father died in 1857 when Catherine was just 15. At such a young age, she was separated from most of her brothers and sisters when she was placed into a workhouse for orphans with three of her siblings. When she was 26 years old, she moved to London in 1868 with her husband Thomas Conway and their two children. A third would follow in 1873. By 1880, her marriage had broken down, caused largely by Catherine's heavy drinking, and she was living with a new partner, John Kelly. As was the case for so many women in Whitechapel, money was hard to come by, so she took to prostitution to pay her way, when her occasional domestic work proved difficult to find. 
At 8.30 on the evening of the 29th of September 1888, 46-year-old Catherine Eros was found lying in a pavement outside 29 Olgate High Street by PC Lewis Frederick Robinson, surrounded by a crowd. She was drunk to the point where she could not stand up. She was taken to Bishopgate Police Station where she was held in a cell until she was deemed sober enough to be released. By around 1 o'clock in the morning, roughly the same time that Elizabeth Stride corpse was being discovered, Eddowes had sobered up sufficiently and headed out into the Whitechapel night. At 1.35am she was seen in a narrow walkway named Church Passage. Three men, Joseph Lowens, Joseph Hyam Levy and Harry Harris had just left the Imperial Club in Duke's Place on Duke Street. Lowens would later describe what he saw. Catherine Eddowes was wearing a black bonnet and a jacket and she was standing talking to a man of medium build with a fair moustache at the entrance to Church Passage which led southwest from Duke Street into Mitre Square. The man was around 30 years old. He was around 5 feet 7 inches in height and he was wearing a pepper and salt coloured loose jacket, a grey peak cloth cap and reddish neckerchief. Lowen said that he felt like he was looking at a sailor. The three men didn't say anything out of the ordinary so left the man and the woman to their business and headed home. Ten minutes later, PC Edward Watkins found Catherine Eddowes murdered in the darkest corner of Mitre Square. The scene was a grisly bloodbath. Her throat had been slashed and her abdomen had been carved open. Her kidney had been removed and was missing. The city police surgeon Dr Frederick Gordon Brown performed the autopsy and he wrote that her face was very much mutilated. Both eyelids were cut through and the tip of her nose was all but removed by an oblique cut from the bottom of the nasal bone to where the wings of the nose join onto the face. The same cut divided the upper lip and extended through the substance of the gum over the right upper lateral incisor tooth. Additionally, portions of each cheek had been peeled upwards. The intestines were drawn out to a large extent and placed over her right shoulder. They were smeared over with some feculent matter. A piece of about two feet was quite detached from the body and placed beneath the body and the left arm, apparently by design. There was no doubt. This was the work of Jack the Ripper. Due to the close proximity to where Elizabeth Stride had been found, in St Botolph's Church, the police believed that the Ripper had been interrupted during the killing of his third victim, Elizabeth Stride, and rather than flee into the night, he headed to the church, picked up a prostitute, and found a quiet spot to kill and mutilate his next victim. The horrific state of Catherine's lifeless body displayed an outpouring of rage that hadn't been seen until this point. Her facial injuries were unlike anything seen in the first three victims. On the 16th of October another letter was received, allegedly signed by Jack the Ripper himself. This was the infamous From Hell letter. It was sent alongside half a preserved human kidney to George Lusk, the chairman of the Whitechapel Vigilante Committee. It read, From Hell. Mr Lusk, saw. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you. The other piece I fried and ate, it was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took out... If you only wait a while longer, signed, Jack the Ripper. Catch me when you can, Mr Lusk. Unlike his first postage, this letter was smeared with blood. Today, Mitre Square is very different to how it would have been back in 1888, and a flower bed stands on the spot where Catherine Eddowes was so viciously murdered. Some claim that the cobbles in the square on the spot of the murder, in that southwest corner, glow blood red on the anniversary of Catherine's murder. Sometimes, the apparition of Catherine's badly mutilated body can be seen lying in the gutter in the early hours on the morning of the 30th of September, 
in what seems to be a never-end and spectral replay of the horrendous attack. Some have claimed to see a terrible scene, a badly mutilated body lying in the street. They look around hoping to spot somebody they can call on for help, but when they look back, the body is gone. One report came from a medical student who was taking a shortcut through Mitre Square one night and spotted what he thought to be a pile of clothes lying in the street, but when he got nearer, he realised it was a person, a woman. When he got nearer still, she simply faded away to nothing before his very eyes. On another occasion, a young couple were passing through Mitre Square when they heard a disturbance. Looking at the sound, they saw a shadowy figure run away from them. They neared where he had been and saw something lying in a darkened corner. When they got closer still, they stopped in their tracks. It was the still body of a woman. They were distracted momentarily by another sound. There were some teenagers entering the square. The young male sat in the very corner where the body was. They were drinking alcohol and laughing. The body that the couple had seen so clearly just vanished. We're now going to turn right onto Mitre Street, then take the first right onto Cree Church Lane, and we'll follow it along as it turns into Stony Lane, and then we walk across Hound Ditch Road. We walk along until we come to White Kennel Street, where we'll make a right, then take the first left onto Gravel Lane, and then walk until the lane stops at Middlesex Street. We take a left, and then an immediate right onto New Goulston Street. We walk along until the street ends, becoming Goulston Street. There is a fish shop here called Happy Days Fish and Chip Shop. And in this doorway, on the night of the 30th of September 1888, a vital piece of evidence was found. In 1888, Goulston Street had blocks of flats on either side of the road. And it was in the doorway that led to the staircases of number 108 and 119 that the ripper left a clue that was soon found by the police. Police Constable Alfred Long was patrolling the area in the early hours following the double murder, and as he was passing the doorway on Goldston Street, he found a missing piece of cloth from Catherine Eddowes' apron. The cloth was stained with blood and faeces, and was wet from where the murder weapon had been wiped clean on it. Using this, the police pieced together the Ripper's movements following Catherine's murder, and based on the direction of Goldston Street from Mitre Square, it appeared he was heading to the East End, which might mean he was staying somewhere local. They believed he likely had the apron and the knife in his coat pocket. When he came across the doorway on Goldston Street, offering a little privacy, he wiped the knife clean before discarding the apron. The bloody pattern on the knife blade of the apron appeared to belong to the type of knife used in surgical amputations. This appeared to confirm the police's suspicion that either the Ripper had surgical knowledge or at the very least had access to surgical tools. Intriguingly, there was also some graffiti left in the doorway. A chalk message was scrawled on the wall directly above the apron which read, The Jews are not the men that will be blamed for nothing. Given the rise and level of anti-Semitism in the area, the police made a decision to remove the graffiti before it could be seen by the public, and possibly provoke attacks on innocent people. Whether the graffiti was the work of Jack the Ripper is unclear. Goldston Street is a thoroughfare that runs north to south from Wentworth Street to Whitechapel High Street. It still has residential properties on either side of the road, but the ground floors on the blocks are shops, one of which is the Happy Days Fish and Chip Shop, and it was in this doorway that now forms the entrance to the chip shop that the bloody apron was found. We're now going to keep walking, and Goldston Street turns into Bell Lane. We'll keep following until we see Fry and Pan Alley on our left, and just past this, still on Bell Street, is the old workhouse. 
Today, the old workhouse serves as student accommodation for the London School of Economics. There are two doorways, as there were separate entrances for men and women. Most days, there would have been around 200 women and children queuing up for a place in the house, and a similar number of men on their side. The dormitories themselves only slept 200 in coffin-shaped boxes. If a person arrived when all of the beds had been allocated, they would be given a rope attached to the wall, and they would have to sleep upright against the rope. These workhouses were horrendous places to be. And the price for all of this? A 16-hour shift of manual labour. Turning around with the workhouse to your back, look across the street to the modern buildings directly opposite you. This building sits on the site of what used to be Dorset Street, and the location of Jack the Ripper's final slaying. In 1888, Dorset Street was considered to be the most dangerous street in all of London. Some claimed the most dangerous street in all of England. Anyone brave, naive or desperate enough to walk down that street at the time would be very unlikely to make it the length of the street without being mugged or worse. Dorset Street was well known to everyone in London, who all knew equally well to avoid it at all costs. It was sometimes known locally as Dosset Street or Dawson Street, with some sources claiming that it was because immigrants in London found it difficult to pronounce its actual name, and other sources claiming it was because it was such a poor area that there was a large number of DOS houses here. A DOS house, for anyone not familiar with the term, is the equivalent of what would be called a flop house in America. It was the lowest cost accommodation available that could be found with the most basic amenities, a shared toilet, and often a mattress on the floor, or a canvas sheet tied between two beams creating a kind of hammock, so that the room could fit more people in. On the 9th of November 1888, the Ripper's fifth and final murder, although as we've already explored, this is debatable occurred where we are right now, which at the time was number 13 Miller's Court, here on Dorset Street. Mary Jane Kelly was born in Limerick, Ireland, in around 1863. Her early life prior to coming to London is a little unclear, with her own husband at the time of her death not knowing her date of birth. Her origins have become muddled in the many years since her passing, with embellishments coming from writers and from Mary herself during her short life. What we do know is that when she was fairly young, her family moved to Wales, although it's unclear whereabouts in Wales. And at the age of around 16, in 1879, she married a man with the surname Davis. However, only a few years later, he was killed in a mining explosion, leaving her a widow. She moved to Cardiff, and it was while living here in her late teens or very early 20s that she fell into the world of prostitution to pay her way. In 1883 or 1884, she moved to London, and before long she was one of the most popular girls in one of the West End of London's high-class brothels. By 1866, though, she was in the East End, in lodgings in Thorl Street and Spitalfields. The following year she met Joseph Barnett, a 28-year-old fish porter who worked at Billingsgate Market. They became a couple living together in Doss Houses, and by March 1888 they were renting a small partially furnished room at 30 Millers Court, Dorset Street. The lodgings were owned by landlord John McCarthy and rented out for the weekly sum of four shillings and sixpence. Lizzie Albrook would later say of her friend and neighbour, Kelly was heartily sick of the life she was leading by 1888 and wished to return to Ireland, where her people lived. Her landlord John McCarthy later recollected, she was a very quiet woman when sober, but noisy when in drink. She would earn the nickname Dog Mary for the abuse she would dish out to anyone near to her when she was drunk. In the summer of 1888, Barnett lost his licence to trade and therefore his livelihood. The reason why this happened is unclear, 
but the most commonly reported reason is that he was caught stealing. It meant that suddenly the couple had no income. Mary did what she felt she had to in order to keep a roof over their head. She returned to prostitution. She told her husband of her intentions, and despite being unhappy at the thought of what his partner would be doing to earn their money, he reluctantly accepted it. This was to change when they got into a row over her bringing another prostitute to their home. Things became violent, and Mary threw something heavy at Barnet. This missed him by inches and instead smashed through a window. This was the final straw and he moved out on the 30th of October 1888. They kept in touch and Barnet would come to see her every day, helping her with the money for the rent for 30 Millers Court when he could. Early in the evening on the 8th of November 1888, Barnet visited his estranged wife for the last time. She was drinking in the Ten Bells pub and then later in the Horn of Plenty pub in Dorset Street and Mary Ann Cox, a neighbour, saw her arrive home whilst very drunk and accompanied by a man described as being around 36 with a blotchy face and a thick moustache. This happened at around quarter to midnight. Mary Ann Kelly was then seen again around two in the morning, now into the 9th of November. This was by George Hutchinson, who she knew. She asked him if he could loan her sixpence, but he said no, so she said good night and continued on her way. Hutchinson watched her head off into the night and saw a well-dressed man approach her. The pair burst out laughing and headed off together. Hutchinson followed and soon after saw the pair enter Mary's home. At around four in the morning, those living in Miller's Court were awoke by somebody crying out murder. But nobody did anything as this was something that they heard all too often living in Dorset Street. At around quarter to eleven in the morning, Thomas Bowyer arrived at Mary's home. He had been sent by his employer, John McCarthy, who was Mary's landlord. This was to collect the rent she owed. She was six weeks behind, and she owed him 29 shillings. He knocked on the door, but nobody answered. He wondered if she wasn't answering because she was expecting this visit for her outstanding money. So he went to the windows to see if he could see inside. The curtains were drawn, but the broken window allowed him to reach inside and pull the curtains to the side. It was dark inside, but once his eyes adjusted, he was greeted by the most horrendous bloodbath anyone could ever witness. There was a woman lying on the bed, literally hacked to pieces. He was shaken when he reached the police station, and when Inspector Walter Beck asked him how he could help, he could barely speak as he responded. Another one. Jack the Ripper. Awful. Beck headed to Miller's Court with Boyer and called for police surgeon George Bagster Phillips, who'd seen two of the previous victims, to meet him there. This was the first murder, seemingly at the hands of Jack the Ripper, to be carried out indoors. So there was a much better chance of preserving the crime scene, and finally getting a lead on catching this most evil of men. Walter Beck gave strict orders that nobody should be allowed in or out of Miller's court. Beck sent word of the murder to Scotland Yard, and asked for bloodhounds to be brought in the hope of being able to pick up on the killer's scent. The scene was attended by Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Inspector Edmund Reed from Whitechapel's H Division, as well as Robert Anderson and Frederick Abilene, who were leading the hunt for Jack the Ripper. News that the Ripper had struck again quickly reached the outraged locals of Whitechapel and crowds gathered at either end of the lockdown street, thousands of them. They were scared, and they shouted out that the Ripper must be caught. Superintendent Thomas Arnold gave the command that the room could be accessed at 1.30 in the afternoon, after utilising bloodhounds was deemed to not be a viable option. The scene was beyond unimaginable, and two crime scene photographs, the first taken of any of the murders, were captured. Both are online, and easily found, 
for anybody curious enough to go looking for them. But please be warned, they are worse than you could ever imagine. It was clear that a fire had been lit in the room. Seemingly, woman's clothing had been burned. Inspector Abilene theorised that Kelly's clothes were burned by the murderer to provide light for him to work, as the room was otherwise only dimly lit by one single candle. Mary Jane Kelly's butchered body was taken from her home at 30 Millers Court to the mortuary in Shoreditch, where her body was formally identified by her husband, Joseph Barnett. The mutilation to her body was so bad that he was only able to recognise her by the ear and the eyes. An autopsy was carried out by George Baxter Phillips and Thomas Bond. The mess the killer had made of poor Mary's body was by far the worst of any of the murders. Phillips suggested that it would have likely taken two hours to mutilate the body in the way the killer had, and she had likely died around 12 hours prior to the autopsy. This put the time of death sometime between 2 in the morning and 8 in the morning. Thomas Bond's official documents describe his own examination of Mary Jane Kelly in the nightmarish crime scene. Curiously, this report was completely lost until 1987, when it was returned anonymously to Scotland Yard. An extract of it reads, The body was lying naked in the middle of the bed. The shoulders flat, but the axis of the body inclined to the left side of the bed. The head was turned on the left cheek. The left arm was close to the body, with the forearm flexed at a right angle and lying across the abdomen. The right arm was slightly abducted from the body and rested on the mattress. The elbow was bent. The legs were wide apart, the left thigh at right angles to the trunk, and the right forming an obtuse angle with the pubis. The whole of the surface of the abdomen and thighs were removed, and the abdominal cavity emptied of its viscera. The breasts were cut off, the arms mutilated by several jagged wounds, and the face hacked beyond recognition of the features. The tissues of the neck were severed all around down to the bone. The viscera was found in various parts. The uterus and the kidneys with one breast under the head, the other breast by the right foot, the liver between the feet, the intestines by the right side and the spleen by the left side of the body. The flaps removed from the abdomen and thighs were on a table. The bed clothing at the right corner was saturated with blood and on the floor beneath was a pool of blood covering around two feet square. The wall by the right side of the bed and in a line with the neck was marked by blood which had struck it in several places. The face was gashed in all directions, the nose, cheeks, eyebrows and ears being partly removed. The lips were blanched and cut by several incisions running obliquely down to the chin. There were also numerous cuts extending irregularly across all the features. The neck was cut through the skin and other tissues right down to the vertebrae, the fifth and sixth being deeply notched. The air passage was cut at the lower part of the larynx. Both breasts were more or less removed by circular incisions the muscle down to the ribs being attached to the breasts. The intercostals between the 4th, 5th and 6th ribs were cut through and the contents of the thorax visible through the openings. The skin and tissues of the abdomen from the coastal arch of the pubes were removed in three large flaps. The right thigh was denuded in front of the bone, the flap of skin including the internal organs of generation and part of the right buttock. The left thigh was stripped of its skin fascia and muscles as far as the knee. The left calf showed a long gash through skin and tissue to the deep muscle and reaching for the knee to five inches above the ankle. Both arms and forearms had extensive jagged wounds. The right thumb showed a small superficial incision about one inch long, with extravasation of blood in the skin, and there were several abrasions on the back of the hand moreover showing the same condition. The pericardium was open below and the heart absent, 
in the abdominal cavity there were some partly digested food of fish and potatoes, and similar food was found in the remains of the stomach attached to the intestines. George Baxter Phillips believed that the cause of death was a slash to the throat, and the mutilations were performed afterwards. Bond stated in a report that the knife used was about 1 inch or 25 millimetres wide, and at least 6 inches or 150 millimetres long. But he did not believe that the murderer had any medical training or knowledge, he wrote. In each case the mutilation was inflicted by a person who had no scientific nor anatomical knowledge. In my opinion, he does not even possess the technical knowledge of a butcher or horse slaughterer, or a person accustomed to cut up dead animals. Mary Jane Kelly was around 25 when she was brutally murdered, and she was the last of Jack the Ripper's known victims. The road was renamed Duval Street in 1904, before having its north side demolished in 1928 during the rebuilding of the old Spitalfields Market, and the buildings on the south side replaced by a car park in the 1960s. The site was built over during redevelopment of the Fruit and Wool Exchange in the 2010s. It seems that the bloody murder of Mary Jane Kelly left a stain right there in that single-roomed property, as this was quite literally the case when the room was relet in the months following the murder, as bloodstains were still present on the walls. It's been written, although I can't actually find any concrete detail about what TV programme this was meant to have happened on, but in an interview on British TV in 1959, a woman said that her mother moved into number 13 Miller's Court relatively soon after the murder happened within those very walls and a bloody handprint appeared on the wall. It was scrubbed off, but it reappeared. It was painted over, but then she would wake in the morning and be chilled to see that it was back. For a long time following the murder, locals who knew Mary in life would claim to see her wander in the streets dressed all in black. Some passed by 13 Miller's Court and were terrified to see her stood inside at the window peering out at them. Some claim that Mary never left the area, and from the moment her life was so viciously taken, she has been seen. As at 8.30 in the morning on the 9th of November 1888, a local, Caroline Maxwell, claims to not only have seen her, but to have stopped and had a conversation with her. She said she told Mary that she looked unwell, and Mary agreed with her. Then they said their goodbyes and Caroline went about her day. At the time Caroline claims this conversation took place, Mary's dismembered body was lying in pieces inside her small home at 30 Miller's Court. From here, we will walk to the location where Jack the Ripper would have emerged from Dorset Street all those years ago. Still with the workhouse behind you, take the street that is slightly to the right and ahead of you, White Row. Walk on until you get to the corner of Brushfield Street. You will now be stood outside of the Ten Bells pub. On the morning of the 9th of November 1888, Jack the Ripper would have likely walked out of Mary Jane Kelly's room, headed down Dorset Street, and onto the spot where we are right now, outside of a pub that all five murdered women were known to drink at. And two of the women, Annie Chapman and Mary Jane Kelly, drank at on the very night that they were killed, the Ten Bells pub. Police investigators saying that this pub would have been a common link between all five victims suggested that it was possible that the Ripper himself would have likely have drank here. The Ten Bells was originally situated on Lyon Street, before it was closed down and reopened in this spot on Commercial Street in the 1850s. The now Grade 2 listed building was named for a church nearby, which increased the number of bells to, as you can probably guess, 10. One of the murdered women is said to haunt the pub, Annie Chapman, where she had her last drink before losing her life at the hands of the Ripper. Today she is seen sitting at the bar, 
and staff claimed to know that she's present when a cool breeze swirls all around the bar, even on the hottest summer's day. Personal items have simply vanished when they were right there a moment earlier, and staff are often pushed by unseen hands. This is blamed on Annie, but it could just as easily be the work of one of the pub's other phantoms. The spirit of a Victorian-era man, who he is is completely unknown, but he is most commonly seen in the upper floors, which since the 1990s are a living area for the pub's owners and staff. Terrifyingly, he is known to crawl into bed alongside sleeping women. When they awake, they scream out to see a man lying next to them. He turns to face them and grins at them with black rotten teeth. Then he vanishes in an instant. The pub's other ghost isn't seen, but is often heard. The crying of a baby. The crying is heard coming from inside rooms that are known to be empty. And as soon as anybody opens the door to the rooms, the crying just stops. No one knows who the tragic tot is, or why he can't leave the Ten Bells pub. When we set out on this trail, we were never looking to identify who Jack the Ripper was, as this has been debated ever since it happened, and it seems to be a crime that may never be solved. But it would be a missed opportunity if we didn't at least discuss some of the suspects in the Jack the Ripper murder investigations. There have been over 300, far too many to consider here. However, let's look at some of those who are most often being suspected as being the infamous killer. Aaron Kosminski was a Polish barber and hairdresser who emigrated to England in the 1880s. He was one of the police's main suspects due to his great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. He was placed into a lunatic asylum in 1891 after threatening to kill his sister with a knife. In September 2014, author Russell Edwards claimed in his book naming Jack the Ripper to have proved Kosminski was without a doubt Jack the Ripper. A silk shawl came up for auction in 2007. This was said to have been left at the scene of the murder of Catherine Eddowes and was covered in blood and semen. Edwards bought it. He gave it to a biochemist at Liverpool John Moores University and the results, when compared to the living relatives of Kosminski and Eddowes, were conclusive. Kosminski was the killer. These claims were challenged by geneticists saying that it was impossible to assess the claims because few technical details about the analysis of genetic samples from the shawl were available. Further tests were carried out in 2019, and the forensic scientists at the university were even more convinced they had the right man. This wasn't the first time that modern-day forensic testing had been applied to evidence from 1888 in the hope of identifying the Ripper once and for all. DNA samples taken from letters supposedly sent by the serial killer to police were tested and based on this, the painter Walter Sickert was singled out, although many experts believe those letters to be fake. Another genetic analysis of the letters claimed the murderer could have actually been a woman. Of course, we have no idea who handled those letters 135 years ago. Further evidence was uncovered in December of 2019, when a letter written in 1889 was found inside a book on the other side of the world in Australia, specifically in the University of Melbourne's Theology Department. One of the arguments against Kosminski being the killer was the belief that he wasn't an aggressive man. But this letter, sent in 1889 from a Reverend William Patrick Dot, a church administration assistant who went on to become a priest, tells of an attack on a woman named Mary by a Kosminski who ran screaming at her with scissors in the East End. And, and I quote, it's a wonder he hasn't hung for what he did to those poor girls. Are we getting any closer to being able to conclusively determine who Jack the Ripper really was? It's been so long since the murders happened that it does seem implausible, but as evidenced here, new information and evidence is still turning up. 
Other primary suspects for being Jack the Ripper include David Cohen, who was a 23-year-old Polish Jew whose incarceration at Colony Hatch Lunatic Asylum on the 7th of December 1888 roughly coincided with the end of the murders. He was an unmarried tailor, and Cohen was described as a violently antisocial, poor East End local. Interestingly, it's been speculated that Cohen's true identity was Nathan Kaminsky, a bootmaker living in Whitechapel who had been treated at one time for syphilis, and who could not be traced after mid-1888, which is the same time frame that Cohen appeared in the area. If this was the case, it would have caused huge confusion for the police, who could have easily been looking at the wrong man due to the similarity in name with Aaron Kosminski. Cohen exhibited violent, destructive tendencies while at the asylum, and he had to be restrained. He died while an inmate at the asylum in October 1889. In his book, The Cases That Haunt Us, Former FBI criminal profiler John Douglas asserted that behavioural clues gathered from the murderers all point to a person known to the police as David Cohen, or someone much like him. Montague Druitt, a school teacher and banker who fit the physical description of Jack the Ripper, killed himself by throwing himself into the Thames, and his body was found floating in the water on New Year's Eve 1888. His own family suspected him of being the Ripper, as he was said to be sexually insane. He was homosexual and has thought that this was the cause of him taking his own life. But the timing so soon after the final Ripper killing was what led him to being named by the police as a suspect. There is no other known evidence that points Druitt to being the Ripper. Michael Ostrog was a Russian-born professional conman and thief. He used numerous aliases and assumed titles. Along his many dubious claims was that he had once been a surgeon in the Russian Navy. The police thought him to be a suspect, although there's no evidence to prove he even committed a violent crime. Author Philip Sugden discovered prison records showing that Ostrog was jailed for petty offences in France during the three-month period of the Ripper murders. John Pizer was a Polish Jew who worked as a bootmaker in Whitechapel in the early days of the Whitechapel murders. He had a prior conviction for a stabbing offence, and Police Sergeant William Thick apparently believed that he had committed a string of minor assaults on prostitutes. Thick arrested Pizer on the 10th of September after the first two murders, even though the investigating inspector reported that there is no evidence whatsoever against him. He was cleared of suspicion when it turned out that he had alibis for two of the murders, and in fact, he'd been in the presence of a policeman at the time of the second murder. Another suspect was Prince Albert Victor, Queen Victoria's eldest son, who had a rumoured child with a Whitechapel prostitute. Then there was Dr Francis Tumbledee, an American quack doctor from upstate New York with a collection of human organs and a hatred for women. Thomas Neil Cream was considered... He'd killed young prostitutes in the nearby borough of Lambeth by giving them strychnine-laced drinks. On being hung, he is said to have cried out, I am Jack Fur. However, he can't have been the Ripper, as when the murderer was terrorising Whitechapel, Cream was locked up in a prison in Chicago. There are so many more, and even a suggestion of a Jane the Ripper rather than a Jack. This was a theory championed by Sherlock Holmes author Arthur Conan Doyle. Ripperologists have assembled a varied lineup of suspects, which seem to keep growing and include some remarkable theories. One such outlandish claim is that the Ripper was not a man, but an ape who had escaped from the zoo. Another suggestion is that Charles Dodgson was the killer. Dodgson, better known by his pseudonym Lewis Carroll, and the author of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. A 1996 book by Richard Wallace called Jack the Ripper, Lighthearted Friend, claims that not only did Lewis Carroll carry out the murders, but he boasted about it hidden within anagrams in his printed work. At the time of the Ripper murders in 1888, Carroll published The Nursery Alice, 
a version of the Wonderland story meant for younger children. In it, Wallace says that Carol confessed to the gruesome murders being perpetuated. Setting about deciphering a suspected anagram from one passage, Wallace pulled the following. If I find one street whore, you know what will happen. Twill be off with her head. In the same book, Carol writes about a dog called Dash, who was a little underwhelmed by a bowl of porridge as a birthday treat. So we went to the cook, and we got her to make a saucer full of nice oatmeal porridge. And then we called Dash into the house, and we said, Now, Dash, you're going to have your birthday treat. We expected Dash would jump for joy, but it didn't, one bit. Wallace deciphers the paragraph, which he claims now says, Owe Thomas Bain, Charles Dodgson, coited into the slain, nude body expected to taste, devour, enjoy a nice meal of a dead whore's uterus. We made do, found it awful, wan and tough like a worn, dirty goat hog. We both threw it out, Jack the Ripper. More recent suspects include American serial killer H.H. H. Holmes, notorious for several gruesome murders during the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. It is also claimed that he was in London practising on those innocent, unfortunate women during 1888. While the fascination with this case endures, it remains one of history's great unsolved mysteries, and it is possible that the true identity of Jack the Ripper will forever remain a mystery. Thank you so much for joining me for this Halloween special. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod where you will see photos galore relating to Jack the Ripper's Whitechapel. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. If you'd like to support the show, you could sign up to one of three Patreon tiers. They start at as little as £1. You can get early ad-free access to episodes and a monthly bonus episode where I conduct a paranormal investigation, talking you through the history, ghost stories, and what happened on the night itself. This is interspersed with audio from the ghost hunt. What's more, there is currently a free seven-day trial to the £3 tier, so at Halloween, the best time of year to listen to scary stories after dark, you could get access to the Halloween Patreon episode which is the Golden Fleece in York, as well as all of the other special episodes, which include the National Railway Museum, Dalhousie Castle Hotel, the York Dungeon, and Haggerston Castle Holiday Park. You can also get yourself some How Haunted merch, including a mug and a t-shirt. Find out more at patreon.com forward slash howhauntedpod. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would prefer to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not donate £2 to buy me a coffee by going to buymeacoffee.com forward slash howhauntedpod. All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in this podcast episode description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on your podcast provider of choice. It really does help other people to find How Haunted. Next time out. Remember, remember the 5th of November. The gunpowder treason and plot. I know of no reason why the gunpowder treason should ever be forgot. And we certainly won't forget it next week. Join me, and we will together look at the many haunts of the gunpowder plotter Guy Fawkes. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. I hope you have a frightfully good Halloween. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, 
how haunted.